0: Hello, and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This month marks the birthday of Eero Saarinen, the world-famous architect who designed, among other things, the St. Louis Arch, parts of JFK International, and, weirdly, a lot of chairs. So, in honor of this, our episode today is on the subject of architecture. Or, potentially, I prepared an episode on architecture and then found a famous architect who was born this month. You be the judge. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen. And
0: these were some damn interesting weeks.
2: First Link our first link comes from CBS 60 Minutes, and I wanted to focus on some kind of uplifting stuff because what a week and what a month and what a yeah. year, am I right? Uplifting's uh, good. Yes. I, make me feel uplifted. <laughs> I will do my very best, and or shall I say Chris Downey will do his very best. Um, the <laughs> article is entitled, Architect Goes Blind says he's actually gotten better at his job. Wow! Basically, it's a story about how an architect named Chris Downey, who lives outside of San Francisco, back in 2008, he was 45 years old. He had a great job at a small housing firm outside San Francisco, happily married, 10-year-old son, an avid cyclist. But then they discovered a tumor in his brain, and the tumor was right next to the optic nerve. The surgery went fine, but then he noticed when he was playing ball with his kid that half of his field of vision would kind of go in and out, like he would stop seeing the ball. And then pretty shortly thereafter, he just lost all sense of sight altogether. And this was after the surgery? Yeah. When he came out of surgery, he was able to see, but then half his field of vision disappeared. And then the next time he woke up, it was just complete and total darkness. He couldn't see anything. They did days of frantic testing, and then a surgeon gave him the bad news that it was permanent and basically sent in a social worker who sat down and said, oh, I see from your chart that you're an architect, so let's talk about career alternatives. Like right off the bat, they were like, you can't be an architect architect anymore and he just felt himself getting boxed in by limitations But he did a lot of thinking and, you know, his son is 10 years old. He was at that point in time where he's saying, listen, if you really want something, you have to work at it. And he realized that he could be a model for the kind of behavior he wanted to instill for his son. So motivated to set an example, he headed back to work a month later.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: He also joined up with a nonprofit called Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And he found different tools that actually helped bring him back into the fold. So he found out that he could sketch his ideas using these malleable wax sticks on plans that had been printed out that look like regular architect blueprints, but are embossed. So it's basically like Braille. You can kind of Uh feel your way through what the designs look like, And he discovered that, especially as he was moving through spaces that he had been familiar with from an architectural level, he discovered that he started hearing them. He started noticing the sounds, the textures, how the sound would change because there's a canopy overhead, Mm -hmm. how sound works from the tip of the cane to kind of echo things around. And it gave him another way to really experience the space that essentially had him rediscover architecture. He felt like a kid again. And he started getting a lot of work because he basically started specializing as the blind architect. So (laughs) what happened was there was, I think, like a veteran center that was redesigning some of their blind accessible spaces. And they were very interested to talk to him. And because of that, he was able to start to pivot his unique perspective and skill set into consulting for a lot of projects that specifically work at buildings for the blind. Well, and I would imagine acoustics like concert halls and stuff, the acoustics Mm -hmm. matter. So you
0: would, you would want that added perspective.
2: Yeah, yeah. He even had a chance to, like right now, he is in the process of redeveloping that lighthouse center that I mentioned earlier. And one of the things that he talked about was that 99% of the time, people who become blind later in life don't know a blind person already. So they're really coming into it super cold. They have no idea what to expect. They don't really have anyone to kind of show them the ropes. So these sort of social centers are really, really important. And he wanted it to feel more like coming into the Apple store with this idea that there might be something fun around the corner and that it's a space to explore and be delighted and surprised instead of feel really fearful about. And so one of his ideas was to break through the building internal architecture and link the three floors with an internal staircase that sighted people can see, but more importantly, that the blind can actually hear it really promotes things like being able to hear the tap of someone's cane or even the click of a toenails for the guide dogs. <laughs> and you can actually hear people based on the way that they tap or the way that they walk. Like these kinds of patterns can be recognizable over time. And so having a very sound accessible space is really important for those who, who are blind. Ultimately, Chris Downey is convinced he's a better architect today than when he was cited. And there's silver linings all over the place. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, yeah, absolutely. there's a certain element of
0: like, screw you to that social worker who was just immediately <laughs> yeah. like, drop everything you've known and come up with something different because you're never getting it back.
2: Exactly. It, it is not a death sentence, and that was something that he notes in this interview. He was like, look, I'm still here. My son still has a father. This is something that I can actually work with, work through, and make even better. And based on this interview, it sounds like that absolutely hit the mark. Well, good for him. A little yes. bit of hope today, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next link?
1: Next link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled, Whitest Ever Paint reflects 98% of sunlight. Oh, wow. Scientists in the U.S. have developed a paint significantly whiter than the whitest paint currently available. Tests carried out by researchers at Purdue University on their ultra-white paint showed it reflected more than 98% of sunlight, and that suggests, the scientists say, it could help save energy and fight climate change. So, painting cool roofs white is an energy-saving approach already being rolled out in some major cities. Commercially available white paints reflect between 80 to 90% of sunlight, according to lead researcher Professor Shulin Ran from Purdue in West Lafayette, Indiana. It's a big deal because every 1% of reflectance you get translates to 10 watts per meter squared less heat from the sun. So if you were to use our paint to cover a roof area of about 1,000 square feet or 93 square meters, we estimate you could get a cooling power of 10 kilowatts, and that's more powerful than the central air conditioners used by most houses.
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: it's quite a bit.
0: Like I could paint my roof and cut back my AC bill in the horrible Texas suburb.
1: Yeah. In the US, New York has already recently coated more than 10 million square feet of rooftops white. And the state of California has already updated building codes to promote cool roofs. Their benefits are still being investigated, but studies have shown that they can reduce energy demand and create lower ambient temperatures. And that has the added benefit of reducing the amount of water used for irrigation in cities. Hmm. Professor Ruan said, we did a very rough calculation and we estimate we would only need to paint 1% of the Earth's surface with this paint. Perhaps an area where no people live (laughs) that is covered in rocks and that could help fight the climate change trend, which, you know, I had a similar reaction where I was like, well, maybe let's just start with our houses before we go Go painting random parts of the earth. But, you know, yeah. Uh, So the question is, you know, how was this paint made ultra white? The answer is the new paint contains a compound called barium sulfate, which is also used to make photo paper and cosmetics. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Professor Ron explained, we used a very high concentration of the compound particles and we used lots of different sizes of particles because sunlight has different colors at different wavelengths. So we deliberately use different particle sizes to scatter each wavelength. Mm. And then the next question, you know, can anyone buy this paint? The researchers are now working with a company to produce and sell their paint, which they say should be similar in cost to currently available paints. And Professor Ron said, I already had an inquiry from a museum that wants to put up a display of our whitest white paint side by side with the blackest black. Mm -hmm. And the ultra black coating is a material scientists developed in 2014 called Vantablack. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that absorbs almost all light. So its potential uses are almost the opposite of the ultra-white paint. Mm -hmm. However, if you heard of Vantablack, you know the controversy. It is a coating of nanoscale carbon tubes, and it's not available to everyone. Its invention led to an artistic controversy Mm -hmm. when sculptor and former Turner Prize-winning artist Anish Kapoor bought the exclusive rights to use it as an art material. To be clear, that means that nobody else can buy Vantablack or use it, except for Anish Kapoor in the context of an art piece. Which is so Uh, rude, so So rude. Yeah, very (laughs) rude. (laughs) In response, UK-based artist Stuart Semple created a pigment that he claimed to be the world's pinkest pink, and made it available to purchase on his website for everyone but Anish <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So there's that's a little bit of a fun artistic back and forth you might want to check out. <laughs> uh, they have sent some messages, including a couple middle fingers. Yeah. Uh, so Black's developers, a company called Surrey Nanosystems, said that the exclusivity deal with Mr. Kapoor would not preclude the whitest white being displayed along the blackest black in a museum. That isn't art. We would see it as an educational display for people interested in the science and technology behind extremes of light and darkness, the company told BBC News. Now, I don't know if a company has the right to decide what is art or not, (laughs) even if you made it, but if we can get by that loophole, I'll accept it.
0: Yeah, I mean, they can say whatever they want, but Anish Kapoor can still sue them. Like maybe yes. it'll be thrown out eventually, but it still seems like a headache.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you put two colors in a museum, it's art at that point. But you yeah, know, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a science museum. Anyways, Professor Ron added that it would be up to the company that produces the ultra white paint, but he hoped that it would be available to everyone.
0: Well, that's really cool. I have to, I was going through this whole thought process where you're talking about that of like, oh, okay, well, so it reflects all the light. So it would be great for somewhere like here where it's basically hot all year round. But you wouldn't, Mm -hmm. like you said, it was on on buildings in New York. And I was like, well, in the winter, wouldn't it actually just offset because now they have to use their heaters more? Except then I was thinking, no, because it snows. So their roofs are already white in the winter. So, you know, that was just an entirely long sidetrack that my brain went on of like, no, this is actually a terrible idea. No, wait, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's quite possible that we may have that situation happen. I mean, I don't really understand the effects of how heat gets trapped in the air or in the light, but like it might result in less severe winters, even because the heat is in the air as opposed to being subtracted from the house.
0: I don't follow you, but I'll, yeah. yeah. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> These are the kind of questions science has to ask.
1: Yeah, we just read the articles. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, last week we talked about white roofs for reflecting energy, and this week we're going to talk about blue roofs for a different kind of environmental impact. Specifically, from CBC News, blue roofs could help reduce the flooding effects of big storms. Hmm. So in this case, the color is more metaphor than literal. A blue roof is one which has a water storage system that can collect rainwater during heavy storms and release it slowly over a few days so that the sewage system doesn't get overwhelmed. Which they don't really have a picture or anything, but basically it sounds what they're describing as a giant pool on your roof. Like you just have a big empty pool that you can Mm -hmm. skateboard when it hasn't rained and it fills up when it does (laughs) rain. But flooding is actually becoming more of a problem worldwide, partly because climate change is bringing more intense storms, but also because cities are made of concrete, which obviously can't absorb water. So when you cover the ground with a bunch of asphalt and other non-permeable surfaces, you get runoff and the water is forced to accumulate in whatever drains it can find. Huh. So the bigger our cities get, the worse the flooding gets. yeah. Bruce Taylor runs a company that provides businesses with sustainable solutions. And he says that water damage has become the leading cause of personal property claims in Canada because this is from the CBC. Mm -hmm. He says that the stored water on top of a blue roof not only slows down the flow into the ground, which prevents the flooding, but also provides the building with a cooling effect through evaporation. And, of course, much of that water could be reclaimed for irrigation or other purposes. Hmm. Even better, there are blue-green roofs, which combine the benefits of a blue roof with the plant-growing features of a green roof. And some cities like Amsterdam have already installed some 10,000 square meters of blue-green roofs on their social housing complexes. And, you know, since the blue roof doesn't actually have to be blue, you could conceivably (laughs) have a blue-white roof, too, right? You paint the inside of the pool that reflective white. And then mm-hmm. the water comes in. And I think a blue-green white roof would be impossible because the plants would cover up the white. So you right. would have to choose. Do you want a blue-white roof or a blue-green roof? But it's not a bad collection of color schemes overall, you know, no. as far as painting your roof and putting a pool on and growing some plants up there. Yeah. It's a little bit like the opening of Pokemon. You got to, like, pick your <laughs> pick your main thing. Are you going to be a water type or a grass type or That's a right. white paint type? right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Next link.
1: Next Next link. link.
2: Uh, Well, we're going to stick around the food topic here with New Atlas reporting that certain recycled food scraps can yield edible yet robust construction materials. Mm (laughs) Okay. There's a lot to unpack here, but researchers at the Institute of Industrial Science at the University of Tokyo have developed a way to recycle food scraps into construction materials that are stronger than concrete, yet remain edible and tasty. And all I can think of is the mouse plague that's hit Australia. Like- oh, yeah. Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I unfortunately made the mistake of watching one of the videos, and it was a horde of them crawling right, and racing over bales, <laughs> Decidedly not cute. And I can yeah. only imagine what would happen if you had, like, you know, building. Yeah, buildings.
1: they're going to scale that thing? Yeah, I was going to ask if this research institute in Tokyo is actually just a giant gingerbread house and <laughs> the scientists are like witches. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's run by cats. I've heard this story. They're luring you in. That's what this uh-huh. is. Yeah. Well, it does aim to solve one big problem, which is food wastage, right? According to the United Nations, about 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted around the world every year. And the basic idea is you take common scraps like fruit and vegetables, you mix them with seaweed and then process it to produce materials that are stronger than concrete, but I, still I, taste like the original material. I just, I just don't understand. I mean, you cannot eat concrete; it's too hard. My
0: teeth would crack. So, like, I, I'm assuming to make it edible, you then soften it again somehow. But uh, how do you soften it? Because, okay, so you have this building made of food scraps, and then it rains. Like the whole thing is gonna just sog down on top of you, and you're gonna drown in a bunch of melon rinds. I don't.
2: I'm. I'm not saying they're liars. I'm just saying it's
0: very confusing to me.
2: It is to me, too. And so let's take a closer look at the actual process they used here because, you know, intact melon rinds as a visual is not necessarily in play. So what they did is used a technique that was originally developed to make building materials from wood powder. And so researchers took food scraps like seaweed, cabbage leaves, orange, onion, pumpkin, banana peels. They vacuum dried them and then pulverized them into a super fine powder. They then mixed the powder with water and seasonings and pressed it in a mold at high temperature. And the results resisted rot, it resisted fungi, and even resisted insects for a test period of four months. Even adding (laughs) sugar and salt did not affect a material's strength, with the exception of the specimen derived from pumpkin. All of the materials exceeded the researchers' bending strength target. They also found why, that
1: <laughs> why not pumpkin? What is happening with this technology? I don't understand.
2: I know. I'm sorry,
1: please continue. It's okay. Like I feel you on this
2: because the more I read, the more detail they went into. I just kept asking, why is this a thing right. that they're doing? But but I'll tell you what they found. They found that Chinese cabbage leaves produced a material over three times stronger than concrete but not anywhere near as hard. Otherwise, the edibility would be moot. I, the, you know what this
0: feels like? This feels like a really questionable definition of stronger than concrete. Like, you know how they're like, yeah. oh, diamonds are the hardest substance, but really right. they just mean scratchability. You can smash right. a diamond really easily. I think yes. they're just like, oh, yeah, the hardness when I look at it. I, yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely not buying it. I
2: am too. And, you know, they mentioned the whole remaining edible aspect of this is touted throughout the article. And I can't
1: imagine why that's a benefit. Yeah, like I put up a wall in my house and I'm like, ah, this wall feels a little weak. Let me just like break down this beef jerky wall and uh, throw in a little Chinese cabbage wall instead. And then, (laughs) to
2: be fair, most of this stuff was all vegetables, right? So they were looking at seaweed, cabbage, onion, orange. I don't think a beef jerky house would do anything other than get a pack of wolves to move in real fast. But I
1: could have a tofu wall is what you're saying. Yes, (laughs)
0: but not a pumpkin one, because that's ridiculous. (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. All right. So we've sort of known it was on the horizon for a while, but it looks like a permanent human presence on the moon is starting to be a sooner rather than later kind of proposition. And to that end, this next article is called The Lunar Lantern Could Be a Beacon for Humanity on the Moon. Get it? Beacon? Lantern? Mm. Uh, Headline Uh, writers. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) the Lunar Lantern is the name for a comprehensive lunar habitat currently on display at the 17th International Architecture Exhibition in Venice, Italy. The project was spearheaded by ICON, which calls itself an advanced construction company, and was designed through a collaboration between two architectural firms, the Bjark Ingels Group, or BIG, And Space Exploration Architecture, or Search Plus. So both companies have worked on lunar and Martian concepts before, and Search Plus in particular is known for its human-centric designs. Their past work with NASA includes the Human Habitability Division at the Johnson Space Center here in Texas, and the Moon to Mars Planetary Autonomous Construction Technologies, or MPACT team. There's a lot of acronyms in this article, I'll be honest. (laughs) They have also won several open competitions in the NASA 3D Printed Habitat Challenge, including their Mars Ice House and Mars X House V2. All of which is to say... These folks know what they're doing and they're getting to the point where their designs are being truly finalized and won't be theoretical anymore. You know, for a long time, these things have been sort of an artist's rendition of or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this Lunar Lantern thing is looking like it's really going to be the thing we're going to build up there when astronauts go back to the moon in October of 2024. Whoa. So if you want to judge for yourself how visually pleasing and human centric it is, there's a full video in the article that's the same one being shown to attendees this week at the Architectural Exhibition in Italy. But there's also a lot of stuff under the hood worth discussing because this thing is truly a full combination of form and function. So first off, the entire structure is going to be situated atop a base isolator, which is a sort of plate that can slide laterally and counteract the forces of moon quakes, which are apparently quite common. Unlike on Earth, where nearly all quakes are caused by plate tectonics, Moonquakes are usually caused by sudden dramatic changes in temperature as the surface passes in and out of sunlight without an insulating atmosphere to slow down the heat exchange. They can also be a side effect of meteorite impact, and there's also a predictable monthly cycle of moonquakes caused by tidal interactions with the Earth. So apparently the moon is shaking all the time, which I had no idea. Wow, Yeah. Me neither. The lunar lantern also features something called a whipple shield which is a double-layered latticework shell that, to be perfectly honest, makes the whole thing look a bit like a pineapple. It's tall and it's got the little scales on it. It really looks like a pineapple minus the top bit. So the Whipple Shield will protect against ballistic impact from both micrometeorites and ejecta, which are bits of detritus that flies outward when a larger impact happens nearby. So the big thing misses you, but then you've got all this dust flying at you at super speeds. Mm -hmm. It will also block the extreme heat caused by direct exposure to the sun. And speaking of ejecta, one of the big engineering problems that all habitat designs have struggled with so far is the overall dustiness of the moon's surface. Every Mm. takeoff and landing is going to spew up this thick cloud of regolith, or moon dirt, which will travel farther and linger longer than we'd like thanks to the moon's low gravity. So Mm. the lunar lantern's landing pads have this cool design that allows for that dust to actually be captured and collected At which point it can be shuttled over to the 3D printing construction robots, which will be using regolith as their source material. So it doesn't Hmm. just solve the problem of floating dust. It serves as this steady mining supply for habitat repairs. Yeah. And finally, there is the unique lighting system, which is where the lunar lantern gets its name. Instead of using electricity or any other form of energy to keep the lights on. The plan is to lay down long fiber optic cables that trace all the way down to the south pole of the moon, which is under constant sunlight. So the light enters the cables and is redirected for free all the way back to the habitat, where a small energy efficient system will simply block the light on and off on a regular schedule to create a reliable nighttime, independent of what the sun is doing outside. They even say they can modulate the color and intensity of the light to create a seasonal rotation of summer radiance versus a softer winter glow. So uh-huh. All I heard
2: was moon rave.
0: Try <laughs> to right. flick the lights on and off really quickly and hope that nobody has epilepsy. Because <laughs> <laughs> Next
1: link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com, and it's titled The Clever Architectural Feature That Makes Life on Bermuda Possible. So in 1609, the flagship of the Virginia Company Sea Venture was blown miserably off course by a brutal summer hurricane that wrecked the ship near a tiny island some 700 miles off the Virginia coast. Fortunately, no lives were lost, but unfortunately, the island did not offer a drop of fresh water. And today, that island is among the most densely populated countries on Earth, and it's still without a permanent body of fresh water. So, Bermudians are some of the most water-conscious people in the Western world, and this consciousness is built into their homes. The roof of each home is mandated, by law, to catch and redirect rain into underground cisterns that serve as islanders' primary source of fresh water. While initially conceived as a means of survival, these elegant roofs have become an aesthetic landmark. Gilden Gilbert, a born and raised Bermudian, says architecturally, Bermuda hasn't really changed. It's unlikely that you'd see any modern design in island architecture, which I think is actually a good thing. So Gilbert and his wife left Bermuda 24 years ago, but he took the roof with him. And today he runs a <laughs> construction company that exports the concept throughout the Caribbean. He says Bermuda's roofs last for generations. The house I grew up in was 95 years old, still had the original roof. The house next door was 200 years old, still had the original roof. And in fact, the Carter House, named after one of the ship's wrecked sailors from 1609, was built in the 1680s and still has the original roof. So what these roofs look like, and the article has pictures, they're really lovely. They're basically these square, almost sort of ziggurat, pyramid-looking things that are very blocky Hmm. with a little circular orb at the very top, so the rain kind of flows down them in a little stepwise pattern. Hmm. And Bermuda is a limestone island, so for most of the houses, the stone that's unearthed to make room for the foundation and mandatory water tank becomes the slabs that form the actual roof. The sloping slabs then catch, slow, and redirect rain through several pipes that meet in the underground tank. Joffrey Smith, who's an environmental engineer with the government of Bermuda, says, When it's heavy rain, you actually hear it in the various downpipes in the walls. It's actually a nice sound. He says that regulations demand that 80% of each roof be designated for rain catch, and that for every 10 square feet of roof, the tank below must hold 100 gallons of water. So the roofs also have side benefits. According to Gilbert, the limestone is naturally cooling, relieving most families of the need for central air conditioning. Mm. So long as there are no overhangs or gaps between the coated slabs, the inch thick roofs are also virtually hurricane proof. University of Rochester historian Michael Jarvis says, in rare cases, the whole stone roof will have been lifted up and shifted a foot or two, but it's still solid. Wow. Yeah. They're really, really striking to look at. They look very, very dense and like they might be impractical, but apparently they work really well and they're very sturdy. So between the roofs, pipes, and tanks, the uniquely Bermudian relationship to water trickles into day-to-day life. A hydrogeologist, Sean Lavis, grew up in the UK but has acclimated to the centrality of rainfall in island living. He says islanders refer to prolonged bouts of precipitation as tank rain or a tank filler. And the water pressure isn't quite the same as back home, he says, and baths are more of a rarity. And they're probably a quarterly event if there's been a good rain, but it's somewhat frowned upon. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Gilbert says, Bermudian kids are always taught about conservation and the Bermuda roofs from a young age. From taking short showers to turning off the water while brushing your teeth and in rough times, flushing toilets as little as possible. He says, we were raised to be cognizant of how much water was in the tank. We had to make it last. In the 20th century, the growth of the tourism industry meant the arrival of hordes of water gluttonous mainlanders, mostly Americans. Yeah. <laughs> and around then, according to Jarvis, the island developed its first desalination plants, which use reverse osmosis to make fresh water. Other backup sources were identified throughout the century, including groundwater lenses, which is fresh water that floats on top of denser salt water, Ooh. as well as water mains and trucks to bring water to empty tanked families. The island now fills all its water needs consistently, but according to Smith, rain catch from Bermuda roofs is still far and away the largest source. As Jarvis says, Bermudian families strive for self-sufficiency to need government water is almost like surrendering like you lost the fight.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, we're probably all going to be in the same boat in the next century or so. So obviously we need to pay attention and learn what they know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, after the Texas storm and no water and Mm -hmm. no power and all that, I was like, oh, where is the nearest river? I mean, I guess. (laughs) Well, and we've got limestone (laughs) here. We could
0: absolutely make limestone roofs here. We've got all sorts of limestone under the ground. Yeah, but you have to like believe in science
2: for all of those projects to go
1: through. <laughs> I still oh well.
0: I think if you were the first person on your block with a white ziggurat roof like I think you could start a trend I think it would be really cool
1: yeah I mean they look very trendy and they could certainly go on some schnitzy celebrity houses I don't know what schnitzy even means but it just felt like the right word <laughs> seems right it seems right yeah yeah anyways next link next, next link, link.
0: All right. Well, I have a quick one here right at the end. Uh, I think the title of it really says it all. ESA wants to make moon bases out of astronaut pee. Wow. This is, <laughs> this is uh, from Mike Wayner at BGR.com. ESA, of course, is the European Space Agency, their answer to NASA. And what it boils down to is it's a, a little less shocking. That's slightly clickbaity, but not really. The moon is covered with a soft dirt known as regolith. And it's a particular, you know, mixture of minerals that you don't really find much of on Earth. And it just happens, they have discovered, who knows how they first discovered this. I know, you know, they bring moon rocks back, they bring samples back, and they run experiments. But it still seems a bit of a stretch for someone to have said, I wonder what happens if you pee on it. But uh, (laughs) somebody did, and they have discovered that it happens to form this sort of concrete when mixed with the right amount of urea, which is a main chemical in urine. So you're not strictly just peeing on it. You're sort of extracting urea, which actually you can buy commercially. They use urea for a lot of different things. You mix it in the right quantities and you get this lunar concrete, which is apparently very, very strong. It actually is perfectly strong enough to build buildings out of. And the key of it, of course, is that you would not have to bring the building materials up to the moon for some potential lunar base that you were trying mm, to build. Nice. You just, you know, bring your astronauts, bring a thing that can process mm-hmm. the urea out of their urine, which really they're going to be doing anyway because they have to refilter all the water. And then you mix the urea with the dirt that's everywhere and you've got your building materials ready to go. And so for right now, they're only testing suitability, right? They're basically like, you know, we're a long, long way from building a moon base, but we got a really good idea once we get up there to uh, <laughs> make a bunch of buildings out of peak. Wow.
1: So <laughs> It does make me imagine sort of hypothetical scenarios where after we've terraformed the moon and put oxygen up there, what kind of a hijinks, you know, just like high schoolers get into <laughs> with the land and, you know, being high schoolers oh, yeah. and... The mind boggles.
2: You know, we clearly need to get like six boys aged 13 to 16 <laughs> All right, leave to them go there. out and exactly <laughs> let them sort it out because they've got this under control. Maybe a few hijinks, but you know yeah, what? And mind 15 them months them later, That's they'd right.
1: like set up a hospital up there and civilization. That's right. And a exactly. badminton <laughs>
2: <Exactly. laughs> bad on the moon. Is they found chickens
1: somehow. We don't know where, but. That's right. That's
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a
0: damn interesting week. Bye bye.